Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always. Today I have one that's been in the books for some time. Apologies, I haven't released it. But first, let's pay them bills. I run an agency. That's right. People say, how do you make money, Ryan? Is it all podcasting? Well, no. Well, some, but not really. I own a company, Regal Advisors, and we are dependent, dependent on CRMs. And that's why we use Close. I will link to the Close CRM in the show notes. Be sure to check it out. It is a fantastic CRM, especially for people who are trying to reach out to run cold email campaigns or um, doing a high volume of outbound lead generation. So be sure to use uh, my link by going to ryanraysenior.com slash CRM, ryanraysenior.com slash CRM. Okay. Alexandria DeSantis is my guest. We had her on um, on the day that the Roe v. Word, Roe v. Wade was overturned. I believe it was her first interview that she did, um, but it, get, it got lost in the shuffle. So apologies. She also has a new book out called Tearing Us Apart. I'll be sure to link to all that in the show notes. But here's the question. Where do you stand on the issue of abortion? I'll link to this, of course, in the, in the newsletter, ridingracing.com slash newsletter, all of this is in the show notes. Be sure to check it out. Correspond with me. Let, let me know what you think about Alexandria's thoughts on abortions. What are your thoughts? And without further ado, let's get to the show. Well, Alexandria, we're recording this on June 24th, 2022. The podcast won't come out on that day, but <laughs> that's when we're recording it. And it's going to be a um, day that will be in U.S. history for some time. It's good to have you on the program. Maybe unpack your thoughts on what's happened today and um surprise no surprise um anything that you learned that you didn't um expect to see today happen yeah well great to be with you thanks so much for having me on the on the podcast and this is actually the first interview i'm doing in the wake of roe v wade being overturned so it's very exciting to to get a chance to talk about it um you know i've been working on this issue for about six years now as a writer at national review and um, that's just a, a tiny kind of blink of an eye compared to so many pro-lifers who've been working towards this day. But I have to say, I, it almost felt like it would never actually come. You know, you hope and pray that that you'll get there, but it just kind of feels unreal still. It hasn't totally um, sunk in, even though I think we've known for a while there was a majority on the court now um, with, with Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett that wanted to overturn Roe. But it's just hard to believe that it was actually going to happen. So to see it in writing... Um, that, that these decisions actually are gone and thrown out where they belong um, is really a, a major victory and, and pretty astonishing. You said you've been working on it for six years. What got you involved in the movement? Well, I, I've always been um, pro-life. You know, I was raised by very pro-life parents and um, I uh, went to Notre Dame and, and in college, I um, knew I wanted to be a writer. I didn't necessarily know I wanted to focus on this issue in particular, but I got a job at, at National Review right out of college. Um, and when I showed up, you know, my editors were just very open to whatever I wanted to write about. Um, you know, obviously they reviewed my work, but the idea was whatever you're passionate about, whatever you care about, kind of feel free to go ahead and write about it. And so I just really started researching, writing about this issue. One of my first pieces was a long look at kind of Planned Parenthood and the group's involvement in illegal fetal tissue trafficking from aborted babies. Um, and it just kind of went from there. And the more I wrote about it, the more I, I grew to care about it. Um, it really became a, a major focus of my work. So why, in your opinion, is this such a controversial subject? Yeah, that's a really the million dollar question, right? Um, this has been kind of eating at the heart of the 
American public debate for, for 50 years now. And I think there's kind of two reasons. The biggest reason is Roe v. Wade, right, which is now gone um, at the time that the the court issued this decision in 1973, the American people had not resolved the abortion debate. Now, most states had laws that were protective of, of unborn children at the time, uh, but public opinion was divided. And, and the Supreme Court justices kind of said to themselves behind the scenes, maybe we can just sort of settle the abortion debate, kind of end it before it begins um, by just sort of proclaiming from on high that abortion will be legal. Uh, and we won't ever have to have this divisive debate. But I think quite the opposite happened, right? And you had a, a huge faction of the public that disagreed with the opinion and that had no say in it. No one had any say, right? It was just kind of imposed from on high by the justices. Um, and so I think that's why it's been so controversial. Now, of course, the question itself is, is controversial too. People have very strong feelings about it. It's um, a, a difficult topic. Um, I think a lot of people feel like this is something women need access to, to be free and, and equal to men which I think is very much um, not the case. I think that's an insidious lie, but uh, I think that's why it's so divisive. But, but first and foremost, I think it's because it was removed from the democratic process in a way it never should have been. You mentioned uh, kind of this idea that women need access to it. One of the things that we see uh, in modern day is the idea that women are really the only ones who can discuss it. So I'm thankful to have a woman on to kind of discuss it. <laughs> I found that quite an interesting posture though, because um, we are in a weird time in human history where um, if you're on the left, you say we need access to abortion. Um, but then we say, well, we, we have a hard time defining what a woman is. I, I, is it just me who finds that weird that, that this is a, that this is an issue that women are, I mean, someone on Twitter, when I said I was going to have you on said, oh, they didn't know, they didn't know I was having you on. I said, I was, I was having a guest to talk about this issue on. I said, ah, a couple guys talking about abortion, how modern. And I thought, well, I mean, guys are involved in the process, right? Like, shouldn't we be able to talk about it? And like, it's weird, right? Am I missing something here? No, you'd think that it, they wouldn't resort to that sort of argument. But unfortunately, I think we hear that all the time, that, that men aren't allowed to talk about this. You know, no uterus, no opinion is usually the line they use. And I think this is very silly, first and foremost, because every child exists as the result of both a man and a woman, right? Women are not just kind of mysteriously becoming pregnant by themselves. There are men involved in every, uh, you know, child coming into the world and in every abortion, indeed. Um, and so I think that the idea that this is only a women's issue because it has to do with, with pregnancy is um, just wrong. And it's a way to silence pro-life men, right? Because they never say to pro-abortion men, you're not allowed to talk about this, right? They're right. happy to hear from, from pro-abortion men. But I think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of you know, they don't even know what a woman is anymore. And now, you know, it, this used to be abortion is a women's rights issue or only women can talk about it. But then these same groups, you know, Planned Parenthood or, or NARAL Pro-Choice America in their marketing uh, materials now won't even use the word woman. They say pregnant person because, mm -hmm. because of gender ideology kind of seeping into the progressive movement. So it's really a very um, unclear messaging, I think. Yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> was it uh, Rain Wilson, maybe I think had tweeted out that something about it's no longer breast breastfeeding. It's now chest feeding, and then people right. got mad at him for saying that. But but they got mad at him because he was accurately saying it allegedly. Okay, I can't keep up. I, I I'm here. I love the podcast. I love having people on. I'm happy to have on all sorts of opinions. But it's it's, it's it makes it tough to keep up with. Um, what are the quote uh, Overton window of uh, opinions and. I think the right has to take some responsibility for this as well as trying to set the narrative from a certain perspective. Um, maybe when they had more influence in society, they're kind of they're kind of reaping what they've sowed by um, how the progressives are attacking them on that. And so it's an interesting time for sure. But um, 
What are your thoughts on what happens next, right? So is this going to, you know, if Joe Biden um, has some vacancies and, you know, he um, flips the court back to Democrats, are we going to see this overturned in three to four years? Is it going to go back and forth based on the presidency? Or will this now be a state's issue or a congressional issue moving forward? Yeah, well, I think it's going to be a very complex fight, right? At, at the moment, it'll be a 50-state battle um, in every state. They're going to have to try and set their abortion policy. There are laws on the books in probably about a third of states that will already protect, you know, unborn children, whether at 12 weeks or six weeks or, or throughout, you know, from the moment of conception. Uh, but there are also a lot of blue states that have very radical pro-abortion laws on the books already, maybe 10 or so states like that, um, that basically allow abortion at any time funded by taxpayers. And then you'll have kind of a, a handful of battleground states, you know, maybe a, a third or so of the states um, that are sort of purple, where there's going to be a pretty, you know, all out debate over what the abortion laws are going to look like. And I think that'll be the status quo for a while. Um, no doubt. I think the, the Biden administration and future Democratic administrations will do whatever they can to uh, protect abortion on demand. I don't know exactly what that'll look like, but they'll be trying to use executive power in, in the, uh, you know, administrative agencies to enforce abortion on demand. You'll see Democrats in Congress trying to pass federal bills invalidating all pro-life laws. They've already voted twice on a bill that would do, you know, strike down every uh, or block every pro-life law in the country. Um, they didn't, the bill didn't pass, thankfully, but they'll certainly try it again. Um, so there will be a federal push. And like you mentioned, maybe it'll come back to the court, but, but like we've seen, it's definitely not an easy fight, right? It's taken 50 years to get a court that would overturn Roe. And so to go back the other direction, I think would, would be a pretty big task. Okay. So as I mentioned in the introduction, you have a book called uh, Tearing Us Apart that you co-authored. Uh, how abortion harms everything and solves nothing. Give me the best two-line reason why you are against abortion. You know, I think, it, yeah, the two-sentence version would be, first, every abortion intentionally ends the life of an innocent human being, and all human beings have a, a right to life, they have dignity and worth, and deserve to be protected from, from lethal violence. Uh, but secondly, abortion has harmed our entire society. We're all worse off uh, living in a, a country that allows the killing of the innocent. Okay. And so with that being said, the, the natural responses are going to come back is what about rape or incest or, you know, the, the young girl who's 13 and, you know, now she's uh, burdened with this for the rest of her life. What would you say to those people? Yeah, this is a very common argument. And of course, situations like that are, are tragic. Um, but I would say two things. The first is that, you know, fewer than 1% of abortions take place in situations such as those. Now, it's not to say that it's not a horrible thing that happens, um, but it's very rare. And so when, when abortion supporters bring up this line, my first thought is, okay, well, are you all right with prohibiting abortion in the 99% of other cases where it, it was not, has nothing to do with rape or incest? Uh, and then in those few cases, I think the, the best response is, First of all, the, the unborn child is not the one who committed any form of violence. Why should that that human being pay for the, the crimes of his father? And then secondly, that's not actually a solution for, for the woman who was raped, right? That's a horrible situation for her to be in. But then turning around and enacting violence on her own child doesn't take away the harm that was done. It just compounds it. Yeah, I've often argued that, um, that I am, you know, for taking uh, you know, due process, of course, but, um, you know, um, I think that, that rapists should actually be um, given the, the full the full sword, if you will, um, going all the way to, to the death penalty um, for for cases of rape. Um, and, and so it's it's a weird dichotomy that that on one end you have the the baby 
um, who had nothing to do with the process, as you mentioned, could be aborted, um, but, the, but the rapist might get, you know, three, five, 10 years. And, and it, it's kind of a weird paradigm that we live in. We say, well, this is so dramatic that we're willing to end a life, but it's not the life of the perpetrator. Right. No, that's exactly right. It's not, there should of course be a um, um, due process, like you said, and I think there should be yeah, maximum punishment for rapists, but it's not the fault of the baby. And so the idea that that the woman will be better off because she then turns around and, and chooses violence against her child, I think is is crazy. So, um, you know, so you, you have the book come out. Is, is the book, was the book built around this idea that, hey, this case is coming? Was the book a serendipity? Like, like what, what's the genesis of the project here? Yeah, so we, we did know, we started writing it after we knew that the court was was hearing oral arguments in this case. So we knew it was a possibility that Roe would be overturned. Um, we certainly weren't banking on it, but the idea of the book was, let's kind of chart the course to the pro-life future. If, you know, whether or not uh, Roe is overturned, we're kind of in a new phase of the battle. Now we know, of course, it is a very new phase. It's the, the debate is returning to all 50 states where we're going to have to craft our abortion laws, and we wanted to kind of give pro-lifers a, a roadmap for how to talk about abortion, how to craft our policy. Uh, and so our thesis is basically, look, pro-lifers are really good at talking about the right to life of the unborn child. That's the, the fundamental harm of abortion, like I've already said, like you know, you asked earlier. Um, that's the most important thing to talk about. But beyond that, um, what if we could convince our fellow Americans that that abortion is bad for them too, right? I think a lot of people have this idea that okay, you know, abortion doesn't really have much to do with me and uh, I probably wouldn't do it myself, but I don't see why the government should be involved. And, and so we make the case, look, this is actually bad for our entire society. It's harmed our, our legal system. It's harmed our culture at, at multiple levels. It's harmed the family, harms women. It's harmed our, our medical system. All of these aspects of our society have been touched by the fact that we allow this lethal violence. And so it's, this is not a sit on the sidelines issue. Yeah, one of the things that, that I've thought about um... Uh, whatever the issue might be. And, and I think the the gift, if you will, of COVID um, shows us this, that in the U.S., um, you know, if you can get local legislation passed, and I'm talking like county level legislation, it becomes very weird on who has the authority to overturn that because during COVID we saw, well, you know, the local school board said you had to do this, but the governor said that, and then the, and the president said this. And so it would seem that if you're right or left-leaning on this issue that actually trying to fortify your city, county, whatever, would probably be the best way to, um, to turn into and to make progress instead of relying on, you know, a, a state level entity or a federal level entity. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's true. And I'm a big fan of subsidiarity. You know, I think government is best when you're kind of at the local level, you actually know who to reach and you can get a hold of them and you kind of know your local representatives. That's the number one way to go about this. Unfortunately, I think we are just kind of in a situation where this type of policy is almost always going to be said at the state level, at least for now. I mean, maybe maybe that would change in the future, but this type of policy is typically always set by the state government. Uh, I think that that probably is fine. It's certainly more accessible than the Supreme Court, right? It's not as though this right. has been uh, set by Congress. This has been just a totally unelected and uh, you know unaccountable branch of the government that was never meant to be involved in this question. So bringing it closer to the people at the state level, I think, is a big victory. Okay. Tell me your thoughts on how abortion impacts areas such as, you know, maybe sex trafficking. That's something that we're all against. We all seem to be, you know, pretty fervent against that. Um, is abortion a something that allows an industry like that to go on? Is it something that harms an industry? Uh, yes to both, maybe. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And we do talk about this a bit in the book, actually, because, um, you know, particularly in the context of chemical abortion, which is um, you know, the abortion pill, um, the most common form of abortion before about 12, 10 or 12 weeks of pregnancy. 
Um, and what we read about in the book is how, uh, you know, the, the fact that you can get a chemical abortion makes it much easier for sex traffickers to do what they're doing and commit their crimes undetected. So in other words, if you're trafficking a woman who becomes pregnant, um, if you can kind of have a telemedicine consultation with a doctor, for example, kind of force her to get an abortion pill and, and have it mailed to you, which is what pro-abortion advocates want the, the policy to be, um, then you can do that. And, and there's no uh, visit to a clinic. The woman doesn't go in and, and see somebody. There's no chance for her really to, to kind of reach out for help. No one might notice what's going on. And so it really does allow this, this horrible crime to thrive. Um, and there are actually affiliates are not at all equipped or prepared to help these girls because their number one project is just getting people in the door for abortions. I think that's a very concerning uh, issue. Okay. So uh, I, have a, I have a friend and I'm sure he's gonna, he listens to the podcast. So I'll, I'll give out his pushback to all of this. And, and his, his argument would be is that uh, essentially the government shouldn't be in the business of uh, regulating abortion because it's something that is easy to accomplish if you if you want to do it. Um, and that it's, it's a waste of government effort and resources to try to legislate something like this. Um, what are your thoughts on an argument like that? Is, is this something that the state should go and prosecute people who uh, have abortions? Can they do that effectively? Is that even part of the discussion as we frame this issue? Yeah, so there are a couple elements to this. The first is kind of at a theoretical level, should we care about the fact, should the government care about the fact that abortion takes place? And I think it's pretty clear that the foremost responsibility of any legitimate just government is to protect its citizens from lethal harm. Um, and so if we can't protect innocent human beings from, from being killed, uh, I don't really know what the purpose of government is, right? We all, we all expect to have our natural rights protected by our government. And there's no reason that that shouldn't extend to human beings just because they haven't been born yet. Um, so that would be the first argument. But then secondarily, I think in terms of the effectiveness of prosecution, um, every pro-life law that I'm familiar with, both before Roe and after, aims the prosecution at the abortionists. So women are not punished by these laws. I don't think it would be effective. I think given that abortion is um, you know, widely accepted right now at a societal level, it wouldn't be just to punish women. Many women are coerced into abortions by their partners or they feel like they have no other choice. For whatever reason, that would not just not be a fair or effective method. But I think targeting the abortionist is um, now we, we don't have much evidence of this because we, it's been impossible to, to prosecute for abortion for 50 years now. Uh, but I think it would be very effective. We can look at Texas, for example, where abortion, um, they have this kind of civil right of action um, for abortions after six weeks. And it's been very effective. I think it's so far, it, it seems pretty clear that abor the abortion rate has dropped. And, you know, in some cases, women have traveled out of the state, but it does discourage abortionists from performing abortions if they know that they're going to be punished. Is, is the abortion issue simply a um, a Christian or a religious issue being enforced upon the general public? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think that people can still vote and inform their laws, right? It's not so the Supreme Court just kind of swooped in and said abortion is illegal across the entire country and put it in the other direction. This is still something where where people can vote for representatives who share their views. Um, it's just back in the, the democratic process where it belongs. So would you be in favor of abortion if it was voted on at a state level? Oh, I mean, I certainly wouldn't support not, that. But not, I'm sorry, that, not in favor of actually yeah. abortion, but, but those, those laws. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it's un, unjust. I think that would be a deeply unjust law. But given the way our, our government's structured, I think it's it's certainly possible to pass a law like that. Um, I would just have to, we pro-lifers would have to keep working to, to fight against them. So where do we think, you know, we'll have you on again in 10 years, uh, 2032. <laughs> Where, where is the debate now? <laughs> 10 years from now, yeah. It's hard to imagine, honestly. And I, I say that because it was hard to imagine even getting to this day. 
Um, so it feels very hard to predict where we go from here. But I guess in my most optimistic moments, my hope is that the response of the pro-life movement to the fact that abortion could be illegal and, and will be illegal in many states will be to kind of rise up and support women in need to the point where more and more people realize abortion was never a solution in the first place, right? I think the most convincing argument for abortion is that women need this, that women will suffer, that families are in, are in difficult situations where they just can't have another child or whatever the case might be. If the pro-life movement responds to that by showing women and families in need that, that they're there to support them, that they can choose life and, and be supported in that in their communities, um, I think people will realize abortion was always this major deception that was never actually solving anyone's problems. Okay. Um, two more questions for you here. First, how can the pro-life movement um, influence the adoption process? Because that is a very rigorous and expensive, needlessly expensive process. And a lot of pro-lifers would say, hey, you know, if you want to adopt, if you if you don't want abortion to adopt, well, as someone who's looked into it, it's, it's not as quite as easy as this saying that. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it is very hard. Is that maybe an area that pro-lifers should focus on right now? Yes, absolutely. And this is something pro-lifers have been focusing on, but certainly not to the extent that I think they'll need to. And I think now that abortion is illegal or will be illegal, excuse me, in a number of states, um, I think it'll have to be something that, that pro-lifers ramp up a focus on. I think there will kind of be a natural desire to change policy to meet the demand because there's, there just will be more mothers who want to, to give their children the gift of life, but who can't parent them. Um, and so I think that the, the, the kind of... Um, yeah, policy process will have to respond to that need. Okay, so I'll give you the last word here. Make the case for why a pro-choice person should read the book, Tearing Us Apart. What 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 is it for them? Because they might think, oh, this is just, you know, only for the pro-lifers. Uh, make a pitch to the opposite side here. Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked that because we intentionally wrote the book uh, hoping that people who disagreed with us could find value in it. Now, first and foremost, I think it'll be a good roadmap for, for people who agree with us to kind of know how to debate this topic. But we wrote it in a, if I might say so, rigorously researched way. I mean, the footnotes are extensive. And so even if you disagree with us, I think it's important to understand the other side and to give them their due. And this is something I always try to do in my work, give the other side their best case. And so if you're in favor of abortion or consider yourself loosely pro-choice or maybe just haven't made up your mind, you should understand um, the best pro-life case that there is. And I don't know if this book is the best case, but it's certainly very well-researched and very thorough and, and very broad. And so I think um, it's worth familiarizing yourself with as someone who, who disagrees or who doesn't know quite what they think. Okay. We are a link to the book again, tearing us apart in the show notes. So listeners, you can go check it out there. Where else do you want us to send people to? Yeah. So you can follow my work. I write at, at nationalreview.com very regularly. And I also, uh, I produce a podcast with my, my uh, co-author Ryan Anderson over at the ethics and public policy center called life after Dobbs. So you can get more uh, on the future of the pro-life movement there. Okay. Alexandra, it's been lovely to have you on. We'll link to all that in the show notes and best of luck. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Okay. There it is folks. Be sure to thank our sponsor close CRM by going to ryanrysenior.com slash CRM. But more importantly, hop into the conversation at the newsletter, ryanraysenior.com slash newsletter, and let me know what you think about abortion, pro-life, pro-choice, what should be done as a society on this issue.